you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I've got the absolute pleasure to be sitting here today with Oscar Trimboli. Oscar is an author, a speaker, and an executive coach, and he is an expert on the power of deep listening, of how when you listen deeply, you can create impact beyond words. He's got over 30 years' experience across software and telcos in sales, marketing, operations, and product development for global and local organizations, including some awesome businesses like Microsoft, PeopleSoft, Vodafone, Polycom. And it's this combination that provides a unique blend of practical and evidence-based methodologies. He consults to a whole list of organizations from 20th Century Fox through to News Corp, Universal Music, and Qantas. He's the head of the coaching faculty for the Marketing Academy Australia, and he's an author. He's the author of two books, Breakthroughs, How to Confront Assumptions, and my favorite book at the moment, Deep Listening, How to Have an Impact Beyond Words. It's an absolute pleasure to sit and chat with you today, Oscar. I'm looking forward to it. So, where did it all begin? I'm re- what did you want to be when you grew up? I can't imagine you wanted to be an author of a book called Deep Listening. What did you want to be when you grew up? I loved cooking. You loved cooking. And I undertook uh, at the last year, year 10 of school, I went to the summit, which is no longer a restaurant in Australia Square in George Street, Sydney. And for two weeks whilst at school, I was an apprentice in a restaurant and I can still remember the chef Wolfgang, he was German, and I learnt the one, uh, one hand egg break. I made 44, uh, sorry, 144 poached eggs by 5am. Oh my goodness. So that's 12 dozen and roasted capsicums and peeled potatoes and all those other jobs that the juniors get. And then at 10 a.m., Wolfgang said to me, okay, Oscar, I want some lunch, and the apprentice has to do that. And I thought, oh, great, I get to cook something. And I said, yes, chef, what would you like? And he said, my regular, which was a Big Mac, fries, and a fillet of fish. There was a McDonald's downstairs in the building. And I said, sorry, chef, I think I must have misheard you. And he said, I would not eat any of the rubbish that is cooked in this kitchen. Go downstairs. And for two weeks, I went downstairs and bought this guy a Big Mac. And I walked in with inspiration and I walked out totally disillusioned and never pursued cooking as a profession and yet my wife Jenny will attest to the fact that if I want to binge on anything it will be cooking shows and Anthony (laughs) Bourdain is my total man crush wow Uh, New York chef who travels around the world interviewing chefs around the world so um my love of cooking is still there but it's right now it's a love that's lived through tv rather than (laughs) practice 
So that moment, how old were you? I was 16. 16. So it's obviously stayed with you, the fact that you can paint this story so eloquently. I can still smell the roasted (laughs) capsicums. Was it was it taught you about either yourself or or people or um, leadership managing others? Yeah, I, I, my passion is by growing the next generation of leaders. Um, whether it's my work with the marketing academy or with Microsoft Protege and the graduate program there, or with other programs I'm part of, and I learnt from that interaction that. Your actions, not your words, create a massive impact, not just for today and tomorrow, but for me for the rest of my life. So Wolfgang taught me that um, having clear intentions well communicated is important, but is it inspirational or is it really just disillusional? So he taught me not only how you deliver the message matters, but what the message is is really important too. So... I guess in some, to some extent, I spend a lot of time in thought thinking about what I'm going to say. And when I'm walking the dog with my wife, she'll say, way too long thinking about that. And, uh, but I think words matter and the impact that words create matters even more. And this has obviously influenced the work that you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody that is incredibly passionate about not just what is being said, but equally what we are listening to and and this power of deep listening. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What's driving you to get this message out? Yeah. So we spend a minimum of 55% of our day listening and yet only 2% have received any training on listening. You didn't go to school and go into a listening class. You didn't have a listening teacher. There wasn't a listening course you could go to at university. In fact, there wasn't even a listening elective that you could attend at university. So if you survey any audience, and I've done this and a number of academics have done this, you can survey any audience in any part of the world, in any culture, and ask them, do they think they're above or below average? listeners 80 percent of the audience will always say they're above average listeners which statistically is impossible 50 percent of the audience needs to be above and 50 percent below and yet most of us don't know how when we're conceived in our mother's womb at 20 weeks the first thing the first sense we develop is the sense of listening at 30 weeks we learn to distinguish our mother's voice from any other sound outside of the body and then at 32, 33 weeks, we can distinguish heavy metal from classical music. And yet the first thing we do when we're born is we speak and we scream and we want to be noticed, and that stays with us for the rest of our lives. And I always go back a long way to put it all into context. And the deep, long-term cultures, whether they're the Chinese cultures or the Aboriginal cultures in Australia, or in Chinese, listening is called ting, It's five-dimensional and it's about respect and focus and listening and seeing and being completely present in the dialogue. And dadiri, which is an Aboriginal word for connection between yourself, your peoples and the land, is the closest word to explain deep listening. And by 2030, I want 100 million people in the world to know what deep listening is to know the difference between I'm not a good listener and I am a good listener, but more importantly, to provide them with some simple tools to get there. And the podcast, the books, and my speaking is all about trying to get that message out there 
because many of the problems that we face in the world, whether that's in a personal relationship, whether that's in an organisational context, whether that's in a political context, whether that's in inter-country, North Korea, South Korea as an example, it all comes about through people shutting down and not listening. So that's where it comes from. And where did it all start for you? When did you realise that this was something that you did naturally, that you have subsequently developed, researched, explored further? I don't think there was a moment, but as Steve Jobs says, you make the connections looking back, not, not in the moment. And looking back, I can go to... I was very deliberate at our dining room table at home listening to my parents and, and my siblings. At school, I was a hub between the sporty guys and the nerds and the musicians and the migrants and I was also listened to by the teachers and I listened to the teachers and then in professional life I always made a point of bringing executive teams or the sales teams or the business units I led into contact centres or getting them very, 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 very close to customer discussions. I remember bringing one set of executives and our advertising agency into a very, very cold computer server room. And I brought them into a customer's computer server room because I wanted them to listen firsthand to what the customers were experiencing. And the executive team in the agency said, it's really cold in here. And I said, well, I'm glad you noticed because this is the life of technology people, if we don't get our technology right, they need to spend more time in here rather than less time in here. And every time we send out a patch as Microsoft to update a server, they have to come in this room. And every time they're cold, they're thinking about you. So just getting them to listen. Or in a contact center where I got a bunch of product managers to listen to what customers were actually complaining about. And then we did a debrief and they went, they're talking about none of the stuff that's coming down in our playbook. So in global organisations, you're given this very deliberate construct. This is the way you talk to customers. These are the messages. And yet in Australia, none of our customers were talking about that because we weren't listening to them. So one tip I always say to leaders is if you want to solve your marketplace listening problems, just focus on your complaints. You don't have to do market research. If all you do is fix your top five complaints... You will never have a listening problem, but more importantly, your customers will feel heard, they'll be loyal, they'll buy from you, and they'll refer you to others. You know, one of the biggest listening mistakes Microsoft made in 2007 was when the iPhone was launched and Steve Ballmer stood on stage and said, nobody's ever going to buy a $1,000 phone. And yet, six billion iPhones later... Microsoft's not in the phone business and that was a failure of listening. And it wasn't just the CEO, it was the whole organisation that had missed an entire market move. And now Microsoft's needing to reinvent themselves mm. as a result of that. So I can see in all kinds of domains where listening played a really, really big role. And what I noticed was when I was in organisations, I never had problems recruiting new staff They'd always want to come and join our teams because we were doing things a little differently. But a couple of people always would say to me is, I'm joining your team because my manager doesn't listen to me. You do. You're not even my manager and you've spent more time listening to me than my manager has for the last three years. I'd love to be part of your team. So in a roundabout way, it's a great way to spot talent. Um, I remember 
a lady rang me from the USA and she'd, she'd heard about the work I'd done with the graduate program and said, hey, I'd heard about your work. Um, would you mentor me? And I'd say, Priscilla, what do you want to do? She goes, I actually want to move to uh, another country. I want to get out of head office. I want to work in another country. And we went through this whole process. And she decided she wanted to move to Singapore. And I was very supportive and made introductions to her. And then about six months later, I posted a position available in my group. And I don't know, maybe it was 90 seconds before I got a phone call from her. She goes, I want that job. And you just tell me whatever I've got to do. And I said, but Priscilla, you're moving to Singapore. And she said, yeah, but I want to work for you. And that all came about because of listening. So I think listening for leaders means you're always listening for talent. And for a lot of leaders, whether you're running your own business or you're an executive in an organization, spotting great talent is really listening. And if you can, your growth problems go away because you're hiring great people. So I think listening gives you an un- mm. a really unfair advantage, um, particularly when it comes to recruiting talent. So they're the dots I joined together. And, um, yeah, it really was probably 18 months ago where um, somebody said on a webinar that, you know, your expertise is listening, Oscar, go and own it, that, um, that I actually did. And, uh, you know, from, from then I've been very diligent in codifying everything I know into books and podcasts and diagnostics and the work I do in workshops and things like that. And I'm glad you did. And we'll come on to your podcast in a second. I just want to talk about, you mentioned um, in that response about your passion for creating a future generation of people that can listen i'm curious as to your thinking about what the the period of time that we're living in um which is a very uh narcissistic uh giving out of information um we're living in a highly connected world but i worry that we're becoming more disconnected than ever um are you what's your what's your thought of how important this skill is and have we stepped closer to it becoming better or have we got a harder job to do in the current climate? Since about 2010, humanity's created more broadcast mechanisms of communication than ever before in history. And equally, uh, we're not listening. We've created the most connected technologies, but humans are more isolated. They're more isolated in their homes, they're more isolated in their workplaces. So although technologies are connecting other technologies, I don't see that advancing the way humans are connecting with each other. I'm optimistic about what these technologies can bring. Having spent 30 years in technology, I know that they can create great things and misuse they can create things that are really unproductive for humanity. So, One of the things that fascinates me about artificial intelligence and machine-based learning is spending time. This is what I'm literally doing right now in my podcast series. I'm interviewing data scientists and machine learning experts to understand how computers listen. Because I feel if I can learn from a completely different domain, it will provide some insights Computers are now at a point where they can not only listen to each other and improve, but they can listen to humans and improve. 
But what's interesting is the inflection in technology is now this. Google has deployed Google Home, which is a listening device. Amazon has deployed Alexa, which is a listening device. And Microsoft has deployed Cortana, which are technologies that create an interface between humanity and machine. And machine can process content and listen at that level, but humans can process so much more. So I see there's a long time into the future before technology overtakes humanity for listening because listening to emotion and listening to meaning and listening to what's unsaid in my interviews so far with the data scientists and the machine learning software engineers is not even something that's conceivable for software. So humans need to understand that technology is only going to get us so far. It's the one-to-one, -one, it's the team meetings, it's the workshops, it's the presentations you attend, it's the meetups you go to where you make unique connections, not just with the words, but with emotions in the heart, that is the difference now. Now, more than ever, although I can tweet to thousands of people, that doesn't create a connection. And although I can use YouTube to broadcast my message to thousands of people, the really strong innovators in this field are finding a way to blend technology with humanity. And the big blend is, how does that human interaction happening through a listening lens? Mm. So you've been listening to quite a few people on your podcast. Mm. Oscar's podcast, Deep Listening, um, has you. How many people have you interviewed so far? Uh, about thirty-eight now, oh. from lots of different walks of life. Mm. Yeah, we're lots of different areas of expertise. Yeah, we're deliberately diverse by design, where we got. Uh, half the audience is older and younger than me, half from overseas, half locally, half in professional context, half in personal context, half where English is the first language, half where English isn't, um, multicultural perspective of East and West and others, and also, of course, male and female, 50-50 as well, to create a listening palette for people to experience what listening means, mm. whether you're a funeral director or a suicide counsellor, or whether you're an air traffic controller or judge, a lawyer, um, or somebody who's a market researcher, because I think in creating this really diverse palette of listening, it helps my audience connect with somebody, but I'm really doing it for myself, if I'm completely honest. So who, I'm curious, who so far um, did you love the most? Where did you learn the most? Oh, look, I love all my children equally. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say one interview. What I would say is... What are the interviews that really connected the audience? Mm. And the ones that really connect with the audience, um, suicide counsellor, telephone-based suicide counsellor, and Alan saying not to ask why-based questions. If you ask why-based questions, they're loaded with judgment. The time you were asked why-based questions is usually when you were a youngster and your parents said, why did you do that, Janine? And that creates negative connotations. But when you literally have somebody's life in your hands, you want to be compassionate, you want to be present, you want to be completely listening. And Jen, who's an Auslan interpreter for the deaf community, her ability to listen to 
what the group's saying, not just what the individual's saying in the group was really powerful. But equally, I, I think of mediators that we've interviewed who talk about bringing parties together who have huge conflicts around water. Um, and there was one project where a dam was going to be built over a river and that had fishing implications as well as implications for the local tourism industry. But equally, I've spoken to workplace mediators where managers have completely abdicated their role as leaders in a conflict in the workplace and outsource that to a mediator and a really, really skillful listener. And yet I think about Bronwyn, who's a funeral director, who listens to people at the most difficult time of life when they've lost a loved one and how do they listen not only to what's said but what isn't said. And, of course, it's going to be emotional, but how do you help those people through that? So definitely don't have a favourite. <laughs> what have you learnt about yourself during this process of listening to others? This is really unexpected. I've learnt that I'm creative. And when I left school, I went to study accounting and I started life off as an audit clerk. And I was counting spark plugs at a Jaguar dealer in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And my manager at the time pointed out to me that uh, we were doing spreadsheets on A3 paper spreadsheets. This is before computers. <laughs> And I was using pencil and pen because you needed to be a manager to use a pen because pen meant permanent and pencil meant you could rub it out. But I discovered I was discalculus, which means I'm dyslexic when it comes to dealing with numbers. So I transpose numbers very regularly. So I was so excited when caller ID came through because I'd meet lots of lovely friends when people left me voicemails in the past because I'd just ring up the wrong person and start a conversation <laughs> with them only to realise I'd dial the wrong number. <laughs> so um, I, structure was always really important to me. You know, if, um, if, if one thing I learned from spreadsheets, they had rows and columns and I loved the structure, but then I eventually went to computerise those. But most of my career was spent inside structures, whether they were organisational structures or software structures, which are relatively binary. But the process of creating a book or a podcast has liberated some fascinating part of my brain to deal with creativity. I was lucky enough to work with a team at Presentation Studio to bring the artwork to life around the book and the um, PowerPoint presentations. And their briefing process was just astonishing in how to get this out of me and then how the idea evolved over time. And the same with the podcast, where I started with the podcast on a blank piece of paper in a hotel uh, room in Melbourne and where it is now is completely different. It's got its own momentum. Um, people are approaching me to be interviewed and um, I just have fun because I just can... I don't have a format. I just listen to the people and the podcast emerges from that and sometimes that freaks them out. And For me, it's just the process of creating something from scratch with listening, which is really powerful for me. What I love about what you just said is if we're not careful, format creates structure, which keeps people in. But listening creates opportunity or creativity. And if you push that over onto the world of business or people following dreams or creating something I wonder how many people are using structure to stop them from moving forward whereas if they listen quite possibly the opportunity could be there mm. 
And structure has its place. Mm. Uh, I don't think we're saying structure's bad, it's whether structure's appropriate. Mm. And I think particularly in the ideation stage of an idea, in that embryonic early time where the idea is fragile, putting a structure around it too early will suffocate it. It will really constrict the idea. I'm visualising a boa constrictor just wrapped around a particular idea. I was working with a client a couple of months ago and they just went too early to try and systematise the idea before it was tested. And sometimes you've got to hold that idea long enough that it sprouts from a seed to a seedling. And sometimes we've just got to let it go. And I think much like the seedling needs to become a sap before we put the pieces of wood in place to give it a bit of a structure, we just got to nurture at that point. And I think the skill for leaders is to know when that's the time. I think managers put structure in too early and leaders are comfortable with the unknown and explore what's possible longer, which brings more people and more momentum through the idea. So I think it's a great insight mm. you've made. Mm. And that exploration, I love your analogy around nurturing. What, what do you, what does Oscar do to make sure that he keeps exploring his thought leadership, keeps nurturing himself. I often say life isn't all unicorns and rainbows as much as in my world of delusion it is. But how do you, how do you make sure you, you keep gifting what it is that you're gifting to the world? Ironically, structure. <laughs> so the most structured thing in my calendar, the most sacred thing in my calendar, you cannot move, is Wednesday night, and Saturday morning running with Cantu, which I is... I thought a, you were about to say I'm watching my reality TV cooking shows then. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I've been listening. <laughs> so runs during winter with Cantu happen mm. on a Wednesday night and a Saturday morning and swims are Thursday nights and um, Saturday mornings and sushi with my wife on a Friday night, that's our day night. Those things cannot be moved in the calendar and they are my places where I can always come to back to centre to reflect when I'm running where your mind is completely blank. At the 15k mark, there is no jibber-jabber going on in your head. You're completely present in your body. Breathing deeply. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in that emptiness is the rejuvenation. And in summer, that swimming laps in a pool and just watching that black line or out on the northern beaches of Sydney or out at Bondi where you can't see the bottom and you're too busy worrying about, was that a shadow or a shark coming up behind me? So I think nature for me, like Jen always says, my wife, that you know we have completely different aspects on holidaying and why Queenstown was brilliant for us. It was the combination of the city and the country. So for me, the perfect holiday has been trekking Nepal or going to Kokoda or doing Kilimanjaro where nature fills me up. And for Jen, she's filled up by having lots of people and cityscape and cathedrals and artwork around her. So we, we find the balance in between. So nature and emptiness fills me up, but I've got to structure my calendar to make sure I don't let that go because I it was one season where I kept jumping um, and I was like oh, my business is more important and I realized that my productivity and my performance for my clients had declined probably not noticeable enough for them but noticeable enough for me to go 
the time in my calendar for filling me up is sacred. It doesn't move and that's what mm. makes a difference. So I love that awareness and for me that's where the slight flip is not listening, not just listening to others, the importance of listening to yourself. Mm. Um, so like you share about the clues are always there um, when we look at all the various aspects of listening, um, I see too many people not listening to themselves and consequently um, there's that risk of burnout, et cetera, et cetera, or them doing stuff that they don't really want to do. Mm. So that awareness, I think, is really, really critical. I personally think that's part of becoming brilliant. Brilliant isn't about being, you know, commercially making millions of dollars or, um, you know, writing books or appearing on TV or whatever it is. It's actually that, that piece of getting so content with yourself what does brilliance mean to you what does what does it mean i think brilliance for me is simply being comfortable that every day i'm living my values they're really simple i need to be learning every day i need to be accountable every day and i want to work with the people i want to work with not with the people that take away from me it was only Oh, six months ago, where I was workshopping with a client. We were 90 minutes into the workshop and the last person who was running late turned up. And I can remember it distinctly because I looked at my watch. It was 23 minutes past nine and the break was at 10 o'clock. And between 23 minutes past nine to 10 o'clock, it was like question time in Parliament House. They were like children going on at each other. At 9.55, I said, guys... I'm not sure I'm the right facilitator for this meeting. Listening to the way you guys have just carried on for the last half an hour, I'm going to leave the room for 10 minutes, have a chat amongst yourselves, and I'm outside. Whenever you're ready, we can either continue or I'm the wrong person. The CEO came and saw me at 5 past 10 and said, thank you, you've called out something I've been watching for five years and haven't had the courage to do. And you did it in 90 minutes. And for me, it was a really important point was I was literally willing to walk out the door in that consulting assignment, not get paid. That wasn't an issue for me, but it was back to my value. I want to work with people who want to make a difference. I want to make a difference for today and tomorrow, but more importantly, make a difference through the next generation as well. One of my favourite quotes is, if your goal can be achieved in your lifetime, it's not big enough. And that's why I want to impact 100 million listeners in my lifetime because I know I'll never get there. Oscar, I think you are well on your way to creating the impact that you want to create. Um, I would highly recommend grabbing yourself a copy of Oscar's book, Deep Listening, and absolutely subscribe to his podcast. It is full of so many gems. Um, and thank you for the conversation today. For me, um, some of the key takeouts from our conversation, um, you very clearly articulated in the beginning about finding the uniqueness of you. And often it's when you look back at your past and realise that all of those quirky things that you did, the experiences that, that you have had, make up what is unique about you right now. Um, the concept of constantly learning from others um, which you can only really do if you get out of your own way and start listening deeply to other people is so evident, not only in what you share today, but equally um, in your podcast series. And I love the conversation that we had around structure's great and there is a place for structure, but the curiosity um, and 
learning that can happen when we step outside of that structure and almost challenge ourselves a bit. And the final piece for me was, yes, it's important to listen to others, but in a world that is as busy and as crazy as it is with multiple ways and frameworks in which we can communicate this importance of listening to self um, to ensure that we are making the dent on the universe that you want to make. Any parting words from yourself, Oscar? Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.